This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years. I started Self Work five years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to several groups. Those of you who might already be very interested in emotional and psychological issues, maybe you're in therapy. To those of you who've just been diagnosed or you've been struggling with some kind of issue and you're looking for answers. But also to those of you who might tell a good friend, ah, that therapy stuff is just weird. (laughs) But you're curious enough or you're unhappy enough to be curious and listen to self-work. Welcome to all of you. And I've got such great news to share with you today. I could not be more proud of my team. Healthline, which is a huge mental health website, has chosen the Self-Work Podcast as the best overall depression podcast. And what great company we're in, On Purpose with Jay Shetty, The Hilarious World of Depression, The Self-Love Fix, The Brain Warriors Way Podcast, so many some of which I really had never heard of. So I'm delighted and I'm very honored. Thank you to John Crowley of Loudmouth Studio, to Christine Mathias, who is just my helper and colleague and wonderful, uh, to Jeanette and Will Collins, archetype which designs all my graphic work. Thank you all and thank you, listeners, because you're the people who have left reviews and ratings. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And you show up every week. Today, I'm going to catch you up on new ideas I'm having and things I'm learning about folks who are controlling emotions so tightly, they may lose sight of what those emotions even are or what would happen if you tried to feel them. Earlier in the week, I posted a tribute in many ways to Chesley Christ, who died by her own hand in a very violent way, who was Miss USA in 2019, and actually her story has so much to do with perfectly hidden depression. How many times have I heard, if I started crying, I'd never stop, or I'm just not an emotional person. Always makes me think. I'll tell you my new name for Perfectly Hidden Depression and explain how the mind actually disposes or seems to dispose of the memory of an experience and the feelings it initially created. The processes are fascinating to learn about. The listener voicemail really spoke to me, and I wrote a post about my reaction to it for the Psychology Today last week. You'll have that link in your show notes. It's all about when your therapist doesn't really listen to you. And I want you, my self-work listeners, to be prepared for how to handle things if your therapist disappoints or hurts or even angers you. So in this episode, once again, sponsored by BetterHelp, and they're here with a great offer for you, let's talk a little more about Perfectly Hidden Depression. In what may be the most inclusive book on the history of perfectionism research that I've found, the authors focus on every aspect of perfectionism, both constructive and destructive. Those researchers are Dr. Paul Hewitt, Gordon Flett, and Samuel McHale, and I'll have the book link in the show notes. It was actually giddying to try to absorb the meaning of the mountain of research they provide. It's a huge book. But then I began reading a chapter that made me stand up and shout. When I first conceived a perfectly hidden depression, I specifically included traits 
both behaviors and beliefs, that weren't necessarily included in a traditional definition of perfectionism. For example, the trait of absorbing yourself and caring for others while avoiding any personal vulnerability wouldn't necessarily fit into, again, a traditional perfectionism definition. So I was thrilled to read the words of these highly respected and prolific academic researchers as they point out that perfectionism is unique. No one is going to completely align with or closely match some sort of exact criteria. We're all a mixed bag, after all. But I became even more fascinated when they wrote about perfectionism that's caused by trauma, how this version of perfectionism might look different than other kinds and require a different kind of understanding and treatment. And I'm going to quote them here for a second. It can be seen that perfectionism played an important, if not crucial, role in each person's life. The seeking of perfection or the appearance of perfection seemed to be a means to attain self-acceptance and acceptance of others. These patients appeared to believe that if they achieved perfection, something good would happen or something bad would be avoided. And a few pages later, clearly, the potential role of perfectionism in the chronicity of depression has not received sufficient empirical attention, meaning research, But the association of perfectionism with persistent distress is clearly evident among individual perfectionists. There were also signs with these perfectionists that much of their despair was kept hidden and other people were not aware of it. Yes! (laughs) Perfectionism, when there's a tight control over painful emotions, not ever allowing vulnerability to show, where there's a constant shaming voice, Those traits are and were self-protective and a means of emotional survival at one point. So when perfectionism is an adaptation to trauma, that's when it can be used to camouflage or detach from the pain that trauma causes. So now I'm starting to call perfectly hidden depression trauma-based perfectionism, which means it's different than just a character trait. When we think about perfectionism, that's a character trait. You either are or you aren't or you're somewhere on a spectrum, right? But when you think of it as trauma-based perfectionism, to me, all kinds of light bulbs went on. So I want to go over the 10 core traits of trauma-based perfectionism or perfectly hidden depression. I'm going to go over these pretty quickly. Actually, I talked about these in a very, very, very early episode on self-work. Actually, it was, I think, the third because I wanted to get that information out there. So again, we will quickly go through the 10 traits. Not all 10 are present in every person, but maybe you can find yourself here, or perhaps you can find someone that you love here. Number one, you're highly perfectionistic with a constant, critical inner voice of intense shame. There's a huge difference between what's termed constructive perfectionism, which is process-oriented. You're someone who strives for excellence, but you can also go with the flow, maybe make a mistake or two along the way, and be open about it. But in destructive perfectionism or trauma-based perfectionism, there's an inner voice of harsh self-criticism and shame that drives you to be the best at any task in front of you. You're the perfect parent. You're the most accomplished lawyer, head of the class, or best friend. Again, I will remind you of Chesley Christ. She was exactly like this. You consistently measure and evaluate your status, and if you're not meeting perceived expectations, you ramp up the pressure. Number two, you demonstrate a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. You're very aware of duty, obligation, and loyalty and can be counted on in a crunch. Again, those are fine. You're the first to notice when something's gone wrong and you find solutions. You're a good leader, although you're not the best delegator. 
But this sense of responsibility can also lead you to readily blame yourself, take on way too much, and even exert tremendous pressure to ensure that you always stay far ahead of the game. Number three, you have difficulty accepting and expressing painful emotions, and you use rigid compartmentalization to store them away. I know when I'm sitting across from someone who may struggle with trauma-based perfectionism because I watch them smile brightly at me while simultaneously describing a significant loss or disappointment earlier in their life. They're not angry. They're not sad. They're not disappointed. They may not even have language to express pain, only knowing how to analyze, decode, or think through things. Number four, you worry a great deal and avoid situations where control isn't possible. Your need for control is strong, and so a lot of time is spent worrying about things that might occur to interrupt that control. Ironically, it then becomes important to hide this worry so it's not obvious to others that it exists. In fact, people will shake their heads and say aloud, you never seem to have a care in the world. I wish I could do half of what you get done. Number five, you intensely focus on tasks, only finding value in accomplishment. You're only as good as your last success you may say. You count on activity and accomplishment to distract yourself from any inner insecurities or fears that might just try to seep out of hiding. Now, we all do this to a certain extent. If you're having a bad day, it feels good to get something done, or you get a promotion at work, or someone emails you about how your kindness was so meaningful to them. There's value in purpose and effort, but you carry it too far. Your sense of importance and contribution to the world isn't coming from who you are inherently, only through your most recent met goal. Here's number six. You have an active and sincere concern about the well-being of others while allowing few, if any, into your inner world. Caring for others is what you do very well. However, you don't reveal pain from your past. Others might know, but it's not discussed. There's a wall up against anyone discovering that you're lonely or fatigued, empty or overwhelmed. This, of course, can be especially frightening when suicidal ideation is present and you can't let anyone in. And devastatingly, even if you do, you may not be believed. What? You depressed? You got everything in the world going for you. And that could lead to devastating consequences. You discount or dismiss hurt or abuse from the past or the present. Compartmentalization is a skill. It's the ability to be hurt, sad, disappointed, afraid, or angry about something and to put those feelings away until a time when you can deal with them better. Healthy people do it all the time. You can even do it with joy or happiness. Sometimes it's just not the time to burst out singing. However, if you identify with trauma-based perfectionism, you rigidly over-compartmentalize. You've developed very strong boxes where you lock away painful feelings, consciously or unconsciously, shoving them into a dark recess of your mind. We're going to talk more about this later in this episode. Number eight, you have accompanying mental health issues, including control or escape from anxiety. You live your life in a very controlled, well-governed fashion, but actual psychiatric diagnoses or disorders that have to do with control could easily be present, like an eating disorder or OCD traits. Alcohol or sedative medications can be used to escape that anxiety as well. Number nine, you hold a strong belief in counting your blessings as the foundation of well-being. Now, I believe in counting your blessings. You bet it's healthy, and it can keep you optimistic and grateful. But you may feel guilt or even shame if you're anything but positive. 
expressing compassion toward yourself, that's out of the question. Any suggestion of self-compassion gets designated as whining or complaining. And that's not allowed. And here's the last one. Number 10. You have emotional difficulty in personal relationships, but will likely demonstrate significant professional success. The vulnerability that's found in true intimacy is hard for you. While driven to be productive, to achieve, to stay in control, you aren't likely to be someone who can easily relate on an intimate level. And you may have chosen a partner who, in fact, doesn't reveal vulnerability either or avoids intimacy. So that's the what trauma-based perfectionism is or perfectly hidden depression. In this next segment, we'll talk about the how right after we hear from BetterHelp. BetterHelp has been a sponsor of self-work for at least a year or more, and I'm so glad to have them on board. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, and it's not self-help. It's actual professional therapy online. And as I've done much more virtual work during the pandemic, I've seen firsthand how effective and convenient virtual work is. When you contact BetterHelp, you'll get a response from a licensed therapist in as little as 48 hours, and they'll make sure you feel your therapist is a wonderful match for you. I, of course, tried this, and I was impressed with the therapist they presented to me as well as what the therapists themselves offered. And BetterHelp and I want 2022 to be your most mentally healthy year ever. So just visit BetterHelp.com slash self-work and you'll get a special offer to get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Again, that's BetterHelp.com slash self-work. Hope you'll give it a try, especially getting 2022 off to a great start. So how did all of this get started? In Oprah's new book, What Happened to You?, She, Prince Harry, and others focus on the need for a change in the question for those who struggle with their mental health. The question shouldn't be what's wrong with you, but instead what happened in your life that explains your mental health struggle. Now, I'm not a gardener. I sadly don't know a weed from a flower most of the time. But I do know that pesky dandelions will return if not pulled up by their roots. And even then, their root system, called a taproot, extends deep into the ground. And if you don't tug it all out, you may once again see their bright yellow flowers in the spring. So how are you supposed to reach these roots in your mind? What do I mean you need to dig them up? Why should you even do it? Why not let well enough alone? Because what started out as a fence to help keep you safe can too easily turn into a barrier that imprisons you. What was meant as a solution may now become a problem. And there's some part of you that knows this. It's your wise self who's fighting for balance and healing. You've got to dig up the roots of your perfectionism. But how do you actually stow those things away? What do I mean by compartmentalization? So in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about repression and suppression. Suppression is basically choosing not to think about something. You suppress it. You detach or distance yourself from it. You stow it away for the moment, as in compartmentalization. And you're very aware of what you're doing. I just can't think about that right now as your decision. And you probably make that decision all the time, as do I. And another name for suppression is compartmentalization. You put it away in a big box. You don't focus on it or give it attention. Now, all of this can be helpful as well. When something unexpected happens, whether it's good or bad, but you need to attend and focus on something else at that moment, the ability to suppress that event and its accompanying emotions is helpful 
It's a good skill to have. It helps you manage your day. It helps you maintain stability. If you won the lottery or you got a bad grade, you need to focus on what you need to do next, right? That's a skill. And it is a conscious skill. You know you're doing it. But if you do it enough, suppression can turn into repression. It can turn into an unconscious process. And actually, this can be helpful, too. Think about when you learn to drive a car. You purposefully put the key in or grabbed your fob, for those of you who only recently started to drive. You had to think about how to back up, when to use the turn signal, how to coordinate your feet on the pedals, all as your dad or your mom were critiquing every move. You now get in your car and go. What had been an awkward conscious activity has morphed into a mostly unconscious behavior. In fact, if you even sort of try to think about what you're doing, sometimes that will interrupt the flow of what has just become habitual action. The process of what you do and how you do it all seeps into the unconscious and becomes habitual. Yet in the perfectly hidden depression traits I described before, I used the term rigid compartmentalization. So let's talk about why that particular term is important. Think about when you learn to type. Dependent on how old you are, you may have learned on a typewriter, but many of you learned that skill on a computer, right? Then laptops, iPads, and cell phones came along. You learned to text. Now you can dictate and not have to type at all. If you flow easily into these changes, if you learn new things as you go, you're being flexible, curious, you're diversifying your options. You're more prone to make mistakes at first when you make the transition, but you handle that as the overall goal is to keep moving along and growing. But what if you stuck to that typewriter and refused other options? That's being rigid or simply ornery. When you apply this concept to the mind's protective techniques, then if you consider this term rigid compartmentalization, perhaps it can help you further conceptualize your mind's inflexibility. You suppress, box things up constantly. And because compartmentalization is no longer a choice, but an automatic habit, you're not learning how to cope with or work through painful feelings, such as irritation, disappointment, or even grief. Without realizing it, you've traded awareness and working through pain for protection. Thus, any skill in emotional management you might have had can atrophy, almost like a muscle you're not using. And of course, this habit may have been formed so early in your childhood that you never learned to express your emotions more spontaneously. Again, remember, suppression can turn into repression, which is unconscious. This can explain easily why you might not be able to even find the words to express or work through painful emotions. You haven't been practicing or you weren't allowed to do so. Suppression and then repression may have been reliable short-term solutions to abuse, to neglect, to whatever hurt and pain faced you as a child. But their long-term effects can be devastating because those taproots, remember the dandelions, buried deeply into the dark, moist soul of your mind, become harder and harder to pull out while they're spreading and growing in strength. And these are people who truly haven't a clue what they have repressed. There are clues, things that trigger them, that cause a brief question in their minds, what was that? Why did I suddenly feel strange or not like myself? But then the evidence of that something recedes and it can be lost until you start looking for it. You have to do that carefully, sometimes with help, but you can dig. We're going to talk later this month about the family circumstances that actually cause this need to hide, but we're going to leave that topic for today. 
But our listener voicemail also has something to do with perfectly hidden depression. Listen in. Hi, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I discovered your podcast um, about a year ago. I've been going to therapy for two years, and when I heard you describe perfectly hidden depression, my heart sank, and I connected with it so much that I felt compelled to tell the people closest to me, to which they said, I don't think you're depressed. You're the happiest person I know, so I just shoved it at the back of my head. Now, about a year later, I hit a breaking point, and I bought your book. And it's helped me so much. I feel myself in those pages and I see it too. And I decided to muster up the courage to finally tell my therapist that I've been struggling. I did. And she didn't validate me. She didn't believe me. Um, She said, I don't fit the criteria for having depression. And that um, I would have to go on medication if I actually had depression, which I don't. So... I felt incredibly invalidated and really upset and like I just opened myself up to get knocked down again. So if you could give me any tips, I really love her and I want to speak to her. I'm scared to open up again and get my heart broken. So any help would be appreciated. Thank you. I was struck by this voicemail in so many ways. For one thing, I was overjoyed that she had been able to find herself and identify herself with perfectly hidden depression. But then, of course, I was also very sad for her that when she was so excited and wanted to share it with her therapist, that her therapist got out that DSM-5 and said, "Ah, no, that doesn't work. So I actually reached out to this person and we talked. And there are two realizations I think that are important. When you have a conflict with your therapist, both you and your therapist can learn from dealing with the impact of that unintentional hurt or harm. And part of your own healing can be learning to appropriately voice the full range of emotions you have. So these, I think, are her options. First, be direct. You can say what you said last session was hurtful to me. Maybe I needed to hear what you had to say, but it seemed like you didn't think before you reacted or something whatever the situation is. You know, I've been on both sides of the couch. I've been the therapist, and I certainly have been the patient. And I have sometimes had to say to a therapist, you know, I didn't like what you said. I didn't understand it. And actually, people have said that to me as well. So it can really build the trust in the relationship when you can talk about the disappointment, and then the relationship grows. Now, obviously, you you run the risk of the therapist getting defensive, and that can be problematic. Here's number two. First, you can talk about talking, what is termed metacommunication, either via an email, a text, a letter, a phone call. You can tell your therapist that you've had a rough time with the thought of even returning to therapy, but you also have a rough time thinking about not returning, and it has to do with what happened in the last session. Then ask them if they're willing to use the next session to talk about what happened. Hopefully, what you'll hear back is that they're quite open to doing so. I often give this advice to couples as well, or anyone who's wanting to talk to someone about something difficult. Here's number three. Realize your therapist training or lack of experience may be an issue. Again, y'all are my wonderful listeners, and you've probably heard me talk about perfectly hidden depression, but there are a lot of clinicians out there who just have a blank look on their face if you said, oh, have you heard about this thing called perfectly hidden depression or trauma-based perfectionism? No. Again, they'll pull out that DSM-5. And I used to do it too, so I understand. But because you understand it, your therapist may not. And they may be 
almost afraid to make a mistake. So I just think realizing that we therapists are people too is important. But here's number four. You also need to be willing to hear the therapist's perspective of why the conflict exists. You know, sometimes it's hard to hear what you don't want to hear. I walked out of a therapist's office many, many, many years ago when she said that she thought my mother was manipulative, and I walked out because I was so protective of my mom. I needed to hear that. So you want to try to make sure that your own attitude is open as you both process together what happened in the session and hopefully resolve the conflict. Both of you can learn, and the relationship can deepen as trust is reestablished. Thank you again for being here today. I'm always delighted to have you, always delighted to hear your feedback, to get your ideas, your concerns, your questions. You can reach out at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can subscribe to the website and you'll get a weekly blog post as well as this podcast. It's a really easy way to keep in touch with me. I also will post every now and then things that are going on or things I think you might be interested in. I have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work, and I'd love to have you there as well to get to know you even better. Again, thanks to Healthline and to my team. We're always trying to improve self-work, and it feels so affirming to receive this kind of feedback. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.